Hello and welcome to the first worldwide Big Feels Book Club. Ah! That sounds more like we're falling off a cliff, <laughs> which I suppose is appropriate. Metaphorically, yes. This man sitting across from me, his name is Graham, I'm told. Hi. <laughs> he is a man with big feelings. He sometimes wears a suit and does fancy stuff in the mental health sector, but most of the time I find him in his bed writing the Big Feels newsletter. <laughs> I sometimes write it on the couch. <laughs> Anna, sitting across from me, is a professional feeler of feelings. That's right, people. Which basically meant like four years ago you hooked up a main line from your heart to the internet <laughs> and it's remained open ever since. <laughs> That's actually a really nice way of putting it. <laughs> So what is a book club for feelings, you ask? If you're someone with big feelings, this is really a place to find other people asking those same big, gooey feelings, questions that you also might be asking. And the way it works is for each month till the end of this year, we'll be sending out a little something for you to read or listen to on some aspect of the life plus feelings equation. Some months that'll be an article, other months it'll be a podcast or a webcomic that we want you to check out. And for this first one, it's the podcast you're listening to right now, which we've put together with a few other Big Feels clubbers you're going to hear from in a moment. So chapter one, this session, our topic is... Does everyone find life this hard? Does everyone find life this hard? Does everyone find life this hard? I'm so glad that, that is happening. <laughs> yes, the question this month is, does everyone find life this hard? There's three big questions we'll be unpacking on this topic, which we'll get to soon, and we'll be hearing from a few other book clubbers answering these questions, and we'll be throwing in our two cents along the way. And then you're going to get a chance to share your own thoughts on those very same questions over in the Facebook group. There's a link to that Facebook group in the email we sent you with this very recording. The subject line is Big Feels Book Club Chapter One. And Melbournians, you'll be able to come along to a real life meetup. Oh That's my right. God. Real people, real life, real feelings. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you'll be able to come along to that if you're in Melbourne, and we'll tell you a little bit more information on that at the end. Otherwise, of course, it's all in your email. To kick us off on this fine normality adventure, we thought that we would ask for a straw poll. From one person, that is our housemate, Lisa. Hello. Hi. It's us. We have a question for you. Are we normal enough to live with? <laughs> what on earth is normal? <laughs> Great. That's not a thing. That's not a thing at all. Well, you know, like we have quite a lot of feelings. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. But everyone has their feelings, but, but you guys definitely talk about them more. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, this question of does everyone find life this hard is actually really a question around what is normal and how do we feel like we're fitting into it. When you're struggling, when you're having a hard day or a hard week or a hard few years. Life. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that. The feeling tells you that you're the only one who feels this way. The feeling tells you you are the worst person ever. And as my therapist says, that's very unlikely. He says, I'm probably at least a few percentiles <laughs> above worst ever. But the question becomes, how normal is it to feel like life is really hard for you? How normal is it to feel like the worst person? We looked at some science as a little bit of a, a primer for this discussion. And 
Uh, one study had it at something like 70% of people are feeling this way. Another study was a bit more conservative, said about a third of us are pretty convinced we're just about to be found out for how crap we are. But the point is it's really quite common. But. That sounds like a big but, Graham. What's the but? It's not as simple as saying everyone feels like a piece of shit sometimes because I don't think that's true either. Like we all know people in our lives, friends, family, who do just seem to have an easier time with life than we do. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's totally true and I have a few of those people in my life and I terrorise myself by comparing myself to them. Yeah. <laughs> and it makes me think about, you know that quote that, uh, what is it, everyone's fighting a battle you know nothing about. Whenever I hear people say that, I think, yeah, I totally get that, but also... I feel like I'm just much worse on the battlefield. Like everyone's playing their own game of risk. I'm just terrible with my tactical strategies and that's why I've lost all of Australia and most of New Zealand. Totally. I don't think New Zealand is even on the risk board, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that in, in another podcast. So, yeah, for me, I think um, I think the same thing. I, I look at these other people who may be fighting battles of their own and I think their battle is probably much more noble than mine. That's a great, yeah, noble. Like, yeah. like maybe they've got cancer or they have kids and they're struggling with that and I'm just freaking out about whether the hiccups I've had for the last two minutes are going to last forever. <laughs> that is genuinely something you would freak out about. What is it? Yeah, I think you've talked about the time that you ate a piece of cake that had wax on it. And like candle wax because it was a birthday cake and you were like Googling for a while. A short time. <laughs> Is candle wax toxic? <clears throat> anyway, that's a different story. So this is the thing, right? Like we have these these platitudes. Everyone's fighting a battle you can't see or, you know, one of my favorites, into every life some rain must fall. But for <laughs> me, I often feel like I get bowled over by the tiniest little shower. Um, no, no, like not even a shower, mate. Like just like, you know, like is it going to rain? Yeah. Is it going to yeah, rain? Yeah, it's not actually raining. <laughs> but if I don't take my umbrella out. <laughs> and everyone says, you know, just tell someone, just reach out, just just share this stuff. The thing is it's not just shame and stigma and all those big words that, that stop you from sharing this stuff sometimes. It's just plain embarrassment. Yeah, totally. When When what you struggle with day to day seems objectively so insignificant, even to yourself, um, but still bowls you over so completely, it can be hard to want to share that. So we have three questions that we are going to unpack today on this topic of does everyone else find life this hard? Oh my God, Graham, what are they? Number one, what do you find harder than the average person does because of your feelings? Number two, how do you make sense of that without just thinking I'm, I'm a, a loser? loser. Number three, where did your idea of normal come from anyway? These are the same questions that will also be in the Facebook group thread and we encourage you to go there and write out your, to your heart's content uh, after you've listened to this. So the first question, what's one thing you find harder because of your feelings? Now, we went out and asked a whole bunch of Big Feels Clubbers to answer this question and this is the first answer from Hannah. For me, there isn't necessarily a specific thing that I find more difficult than other people would. It's more just life in general. Like even as a child, I was a selective mute and I was afraid of pretty much everything and everyone outside my immediate family. Like 
not just situations or feelings that I was afraid of, like inanimate objects. Like I was afraid of shoes. Sweetheart. I can actually kind of relate to that. From your own childhood or? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So Hannah's saying it's not one thing that's harder. It's everything. And we heard that a little bit. But this question, what's one thing you find harder because of your feelings, it mostly brought up what we're going to call the two Ps, productivity and people. (laughs) Here's what two different people said about how feelings affect their productivity. We'll hear from Helen and then Patrick. I think I've got to do something just right and I get stuck, so I might not start at all. I might actually feel quite paralysed physically at times, but also feel really stirred up not knowing which way to go. I think that I have a harder time being productive with tasks that I want to accomplish. Sitting down to work or study or whatever takes three times as long as it does for others that I see. Sometimes whole days will go by without getting anything done because I've been an anxious mess trying to calm myself by pacing back and forth or distracting myself with the internet. Of course, uh, that lack of even small accomplishment makes the anxiety even worse but that doesn't really matter in the moment. Uh, what matters is escaping those feelings. Yeah, particularly that second one, I really relate a lot to Patrick. And I think it really becomes a vicious cycle of the more anxious you are, the harder it is to start, and then the more anxious you become and all that kind of stuff. Totally. I was reading a thing the other day by Jessica Abel who writes a lot about creative productivity, and she said, this thing that really stuck with me, which is anxiety is energy that doesn't have a path. Mm. So like, and I was like, oh yeah. Cause particularly when like a lot of creative work, it's difficult to figure out exactly what the path is. Cause it's, it can be kind of mysterious. Mm. And so I have to make up a path, which is like spend an hour doing brainstorming. Mm. You know, it's like you have to consciously make up the path so that your energy can go down it. And I think that that's a big reason why I read a lot of stuff around productivity because my anxiety so often just kind of like builds up and doesn't have a way to go. Yeah, there's this funny thing with you, I think, where you are a total productivity nerd and you've gotten me into all this stuff about how to plan your day better and plan your week and stuff. (laughs) Um, And what that might look like from the outside is that you're one of these type A people who's just on top of everything. But in reality, it's because there's so much going on in there and you're just sort of you're looking for something to to try and make things a little bit more straightforward. Yeah, I mean, like that's not what I would put on my resume. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, as you say that, I'm like, what are you doing? Stop telling everyone. <laughs> and and yeah, the other thing is, I would say that I I don't think that that kind of there's always a balance with that kind of stuff. And I don't think it's necessarily the answer. I've definitely over the years gotten a lot of criticism from partners and even like therapists that I'm a workaholic. One thing that's interesting about that though, is that being a workaholic is a much more socially sanctioned way of dealing with anxiety or whatever it is. Mm. It's a it's a much more socially sanctioned coping strategy. Yes, as opposed to freezing up and 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 taking time away from the work yeah which is interesting though because in a lot of the work we do particularly in the 21st century there's a lot more of a the knowledge work there's a lot more of what yeah what they call knowledge work which does sound kind of wanky but at the same time it means that those breaks and that thing that helen's describing of having moments where you're all stirred up with energy but also kind of paralyzed to me that's actually part of the process of a lot of the work we do 
it's 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 a necessary part that moment where you look around and you think what did i ever think was good about this idea <laughs> i hate myself why did i ever I think i project. could pull this off <laughs> totally and in a, in a creative field that's that's again that's a little bit more sanctioned but to me it makes sense in all work to to doubt what you're doing that's part of how you know it's going to be any good but when those feelings are big and that doubt gets really screamy in your head, it's easy to think, oh, shit, no, I really don't know what I'm doing. Screamy in your head is a phrase I'm going to now adopt. Please. So that's some examples of how feelings can make productivity more difficult. Here's Charlotte, Ian and Leah talking about how feelings can make people difficult. I can find it really hard to keep in touch with my friends, particularly people who I think have more more of a life than I do so people have partners and kids and that kind of thing if I don't have any news to report I kind of think what's the point in contacting someone yeah it doesn't really occur to me that they just want to talk crap with me for no particular reason so that can stop me I self-edit quite a lot and so I stop myself when really I don't know maybe I shouldn't maybe I should just talk to people maybe no one's got anything worthwhile to say Maybe. I don't know. I think I find harder than most people the idea that people would tell me the truth. If they say my work is good, well, they're just being polite. They're humouring me. I'm such a loser. I need encouragement. I need special encouragement. I just find people really hard. Like, I know that to some degree everyone struggles with people and relationships, but I feel like I just get them wrong more often than not. It's kind of like I operate between the different realms of like shutting people out completely or being so intense that I end up overwhelming them. And it's really hard to find that middle ground. And like yesterday, for example, um, it took me five hours to write someone an email because I was feeling really intensely about something, but I didn't want to say anything in a way that could mess up the relationship with the other person. And I feel like I just spend so much of my time trying not to let people see how big my feelings are and it's just really hard. Yeah. But yeah, and it's not just that you try hard to not let people see how big your feelings are. It's also you're trying hard to not let them see how hard you're trying not to let them see how big your feelings are. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the thing. It's like such a – it's a loop. Mm. It's kind of a loop. I really also related to what Charlotte was saying about not feeling like you have interesting enough news. I remember at some point I felt the same way. Mm. And then I realized these people around me are just telling me about just stuff mm. that happened in their life. Sometimes it's quite boring. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, well, I can tell stories. And I went too far the other way. Like, and I just started telling the most tedious stories. <laughs> yeah, like describing your dreams in great detail. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. That makes me think of like the stuff we were touching on earlier about when some of the biggest battles you're fighting in the course of a day feel like totally irrational, not at all something you could explain to anyone else. It's sort of hard because then like you're like, well, what did I do all day? What could I tell them I did? And it's like, well, I spent, you know, two hours Googling this thing I'm terrified of. Uh, candle wax. Uh, <laughs> is candle wax poisonous? And in a certain context, that is a quite interesting story. <laughs> but <laughs> you got to get over this hurdle first of what the hell are they going to think of me if I tell the truth? Yeah. 
The other thing that I want to point out is just what Ian was saying in the middle there mm. about not believing people when they say your work is good. Yep. It's a really interesting combination of both the productivity mm. and the people the kind P's. of difficulties yeah. of how, yeah, how they can combine. And this is the thing. What it comes down to, I think, is feelings are a full-time job, people. Like, then you got to go to your actual job. Here's what Hannah said about that very subject. Most of the time what stops me from being as functional as I could be and what makes me avoid doing certain things is just exhaustion, just feeling tired from being inside my brain all of the time. Oh, that that. All of the time. Yeah. <laughs> That's the kicker. Feels and, feels. <laughs> and for me, working nine to five is really hard. I've only done it for 18 months at the longest stretch and I'm, you know, 34. What it comes down to for me is, is people. Being around people all day is exhausting. Wondering if they like me, wondering if they're wondering if I like them. I think that's so much about your environment as well. I just mean you, you're like working nine to five is really hard, but you like work that hard Anyway, yeah. you just do it in a way that works for you. Totally. And we're all different. Like I think I prefer mostly doing work alone. And I think you prefer having an office to go to and a team if they're the right people. Yeah. Okay, we're going to move on to question two of our three GUI questions. This one is, in your kind of less self-judgy moments, how do you make sense of the fact that you find some things harder than other people? without just thinking I'm a loser. So what's interesting with this question is when people sent in their tape, like a lot of the beginning was just people being like, this question is really hard. <laughs> I don't even really know what to say to this because it can be really um, hard to make sense of the fact that I can find a lot of things so much harder than other people. It's hard to answer this one without the filter of judgment since that's an ever-present monster. Yes, my friend, ever-present monster, that is faux show. What that makes me think of is if you find some stuff harder than other people for no obvious reason, it's easy to start thinking, well, something must be wrong, right? Someone or something must be to blame for the way that I am. Oh, yeah. Patrick, who we just heard from, puts it this way. I also find it hard to not place blame somewhere in the sense-making process, either on myself or upbringing or genetics. But... Blaming something doesn't really help, now does it? Neither does saying, well, others have it worse, so it's not so bad. Which you know is true, but also not very helpful. This thing of even when you do blame, whether it's yourself or your upbringing or whatever, like Patrick says, it doesn't tend to make it better. <laughs> you have an answer, but it's not an answer that makes you feel good. I was thinking about this yesterday about how Pain is usually really closely linked to this question of why. Mm. And because, like, you know, people don't like suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Typically. Weird. (laughs) We really want to get to the root of it. And that makes sense and is useful a bunch of the time. But I know that also in my really tough moments, I can get really obsessed with this question of why, Mm. of, like, where is this coming from? Because I want it to fucking stop. Yeah. And sometimes I think I think the blame 
and self-judgment can sometimes be harder to deal with than whatever the actual thing is. Yeah. Like if you feel like shit but then you like are feeling really shit for feeling like shit. Yeah. That, you know, that whole second layer yeah. just adds adds more pain. I think for me what Patrick's saying makes me think of the squeeze we find ourselves in, which is on the one hand you think it's so unfair that I find life harder than my friends do. Mm. But at the same time you think I have it so much better than a lot of people, so why can't I just get on with it? Yeah. So it's a hard question and it's a lot to do with blame. But is there ways that people are finding kinder ways of making sense of their messy stuff? Most people said something along the lines of it's really hard, I do have limitations, but also there's strength in those limitations. And we're going to hear from Hannah, Leah, Charlotte and Ian on that one. At some point I came to the realisation that the things that make me fragile and sensitive and anxious are exactly the same things that also make me strong and passionate and compassionate and empathetic and creative and make me care. And some days life just hurts too much and it can really suck and I wish that I was um, less of an intense person. But um, other days I kind of love that I'm as passionate as I am and I can see my sensitivity as a strength Um, and it's really nice to be able to keep reminding myself that the world needs sensitive people. Last year I had a little bit of a personal epiphany and I realised that actually I'm just emotions walking around in a human-shaped skin and that can make life quite difficult but it can also be quite awesome because I don't know I have a I have a lot of emotions and so I can engage with people who are feeling a lot of emotions and my job is working with teenagers and they're very emotional creatures so I can make it work for me which is really cool and I often explain to them when I'm you know if I feel I need to explain why I cry most days um, that I have a very high emotional water table and that's that's better than not having any emotional water table surely no one wants an emotions drought Part of the reason that I think find things hard is because I overuse my strengths. I'm really good with sound and remembering sound. I can remember phrases really well. The problem is I play them over and over and over in my mind. I'm really self-reliant. I'm really good as an introvert. But sometimes I isolate myself too much. I'm really, really smart at looking for the nuance in things. I'm really good at telling people he doesn't quite mean this when he says it. But I look for the hidden message in everything. It makes my life a bit complex and I've learnt I need not to be so diligent at using my strengths. I'm going to get a t-shirt saying, high emotions, water table. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that Ian's point was particularly interesting because sometimes this stuff of like actually my weakness is my strength and that kind of stuff can can really feel like it's a platitude or like some sort of consolation prize or someone like trying to like take your pain and like mm. put a bow on it. Yeah. Um, and I think Ian sums it up really well that our strengths and our weaknesses are often 
interwoven and bound up together. So he talks about, yeah, this thing of I'm really good at looking for the hidden meaning in something. But what that means is that I will replay what people have said to me over and over and over again in my head. And boy, can I relate to that. So what do you think that my overused superpower is? <laughs> Very high emotions water table. You, you could start a reservoir. <laughs> Maybe it's that I'm overly cautious and future focused (laughs) to a point of like genuinely causing myself suffering. (laughs) (laughs) You think through things extremely well, like extraordinarily well. You will have so many contingencies and have done so much research. And sometimes I find that overwhelming, (laughs) but I still see the value of it. And I feel like there's another but coming, but... But it means you can you can get a little stuck sometimes and you can feel like you can't make a decision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes me really stuck. Yeah, I think that's that thing of like definitely being overwhelmed by choice. When you research a lot, often you can get paralyzed. Particularly my generation is obsessed with this idea of like spending your life in a meaningful way and doing meaningful work, blah, 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 blah. But it's just very impossible to know whether that's actually what you're doing. Your generation. We're more or less the same generation. (laughs) What strikes me about all the responses we got to that first question, what's one thing you find harder because of your feelings, is how conscientious we sensitive cats often are. Like we're all worried about whether we're doing a good job. We're all worried about whether we're being a good enough friend or family member. We're worried about whether the people around us are having a good time when we're talking to them. I'm having a terrible time right now, Graham. Have you thought about that? (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. That good is, to say that. That's a real vibe to it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard this idea that your thoughts shape your reality? Yes. But there's a study I was looking at that if you're in a good mood, a hill will look easier to climb. And if you're in a bad mood, it will look steeper. That's why you need to suck it up, mate. Yeah, right? Well, that's the usual interpretation of this stuff. You just need to work on positive thinking. You need to imagine that mountain is a molehill, right? The thing is, (laughs) that's great if you're in a good mood. Like if I'm in a good mood already and I watch a TED Talk about gratitude, I'll think, what a great life hack. I can be more grateful. If I'm in a shitty mood or having a bad few days or a bad few months or whatever, and I watch that very same TED talk about gratitude, I'm going to think I'm such a piece of shit. I can't even be grateful for what I have. I think that now everyone's aware also of the like the TED talk doom spiral, which Mm -hmm. is like in the beginning, you're like, yeah, yeah. And then slowly you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. So what about you, Gray? How do you make sense of your stuff so that you don't feel like a loser for having a lot of feelings? That's kind of been shifting for me lately. I've been reading a whole lot of stuff about trauma. Ah, yeah. Is this that book, The Trauma of Everyday Life, you've been reading? Yeah, the magnificently titled book, The Trauma of Everyday Life. Mm. Anyway, I've been reading a few things like that about trauma and kind of thinking, well, how does that relate to my life because trauma is definitely one way we try to make sense of big feelings Mm. the idea being if you've had really shitty stuff happen to you when you're a kid or even later in life that leaves a mark 
and it can make it harder to live life the way everyone else does. The thing is, what if that isn't a bad thing that happened to you? Yeah. But you still have these really big feelings and you still find life really hard. I had a relatively stable childhood. We did move around a lot. We moved country like four times and I found that really hard, but my sisters didn't. So I can hardly call that traumatic. It's just I found it hard. But like Hannah was describing right near the beginning, I had a lot of big feelings when I was a kid and I was afraid of a lot of things. So how do I make sense of that if it's not trauma or something that happened to me? And here's where I've got to lately. For whatever reason, I'm just more sensitive than the average bear. (laughs) I have a lot of feelings. I get easily overwhelmed or easily freaked out. So even though I had a relatively stable childhood, I had a whole lot of experiences of the people around me not understanding why I was so upset. Oh, and you think that that discrepancy is kind of traumatizing? I don't know that I'd use that word because it's a loaded word for good reason, but certainly if you've had a lot of experiences from a young age of feeling like your feelings don't make sense to anyone else, yeah, that leaves a mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I've been doing lately is trying to think of myself as like the kind, understanding parent to my big feels. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm trying to acknowledge that they're there and that maybe they don't make sense to anyone else, but I'm at least going to try and be there for myself, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think for me, I definitely had a a similar experience of having big feelings and not feeling like there was people around me who had a similar experience or who understood what was going on. And I think that that can be quite an othering experience, can Mm. make you feel like, whoa, (laughs) I am really weird. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, last question, question three. Where does your idea of normal come from and how does it help you and how is it not so helpful? First up, we're going to hear from Patrick again. And he touches on this idea that it's the people around us. It's our context that tells us what's normal. I grew up in a family of people who were all very professionally competent. Some of them in a way that contributed to changing the world. They exhibit a certain attitude towards work, the complete hyper-focus in the job, intensely competitive, sacrifice of time that I've never been able to achieve. I've also been lucky to befriend people who are similar to my family in that respect. I've had to recognize that I'll never be on their level because I just don't operate like that. So I think we can all relate to that, right? This feeling that there's people around us, be they family, friends, who just, they're just doing it better. They've got more capacity. They've got more energy. This was very much the theme of your most recent trip to Crisis Town, would you say? How dare you speak it aloud? What? (laughs) I've never been there. I don't know the place. It's not marked in my passport. Shut up. Um, (laughs) Yes. During that time, there was actually a few months there where I was really caught in this idea of feeling like I had fallen behind. Mm. Irreparably so. Mm. 
your family and friends are all just doing better than you. Are you trying to rub it in? (laughs) (laughs) So there was a few months in there where I really doubled down on this and started to just totally toxically compare myself to other people in my life. And you told me to talk to someone actually. Yeah, I said you need to go and talk to Gareth. Yeah. So who is Gareth? Gareth is my feelings mentor, which basically means I call him up when I feel awful (laughs) and he reminds me it's not so bad. We have a clip from Gareth. He's someone who, for context, has had a lot of life experience. He's been homeless. He's been, as he calls it, mad. And he's also then become a very successful consultant and run his own business. So here's Gareth talking about the game of normal, which is something he really started thinking about from a young age because he was shorter than everybody else. I think my idea of normal comes from being told what normal is, or probably more likely being told how I am not normal. So growing up, there was a point where I literally stopped growing up and all of a sudden I'm smaller than normal, which made me the runt of the litter and fair game for being picked on. But then when I hit my teens, I kind of saw normal for what it is. A game. And it's a rigged game where those already winning get to say what counts as normal and it's not you. Which is really tough because, you know, like being short, it's not like I had much choice in this. And for years I hated my not normalness and just wanted to fit in. And then when I went mad in my 20s, I think I just got this huge insight into the nature of the game of being normal. And once I'd bounced back a bit, I was like, oh, okay, it's just a game. And if I want to win the prizes for being normal, you know, that middle class wet dream of a home, family, good job, nice car, pleasant social life, then I just need to get good at the game of I'm normal. And it worked. I pretended to be normal and I won. Maybe not gold, but definitely on the podium waving at my mum. And I found that wet dream is kind of okay, but was less satisfying than I might have expected because satisfaction, or that sense of happiness in your life, I've come to see as an inside job. So that's when pretending to be normal stops working for me and becomes hard. And it's usually because I've forgotten that it's just a game and got all caught up in winning rather than enjoying the playing. So rather than flip the board over like I did as a kid with Monopoly, I just step back a little from the game and play by myself for a bit until I'm ready to jump back in. (laughs) The middle class wet dream. (laughs) Gareth. Do you remember what he told you when you were freaking out on the phone to him about how you can never be a med student or whatever it was? (laughs) Oh, he said a lot of things, but one of the things that he said quite a few times was that I was losing in a game that I didn't actually want to play. Yeah. (laughs) So next up is your time to shine. That's right. Oh, my God. Yeah, shining. We want to hear your thoughts and feelings on these same big gooey questions. Yep. So you can check out the online discussion. There's a Facebook link in the email we sent you. If you're having trouble finding it, just Google in your email. (laughs) That's definitely a thing. (laughs) For for Book Club Chapter One. And for you cats living in Melbourne, we're willing to take domestic or international flights to see us. (laughs) Uh, We're going to have a real life meetup. In Carlton, in Melbourne's Inner North, on Saturday, August the 4th. Yep. But all 50 spots for that are already gone. 
you can jump on the waitlist in the link in the email that we've sent you or catch us next time. We'll be doing it every month till the end of the year. That's all from us. Thanks for listening. Thanks in particular to everyone who sent in their thoughts for us to broadcast to you all. We'll be doing that again for some of the later chapters. So stay tuned if you want to broadcast your thoughts. We will see you on the internet. Feelings be with you. And also with you. Should we say amen?